I was on a small cot-like bed. And I looked over and I saw the door and the door had a window in it. And then it hit me. I was in a behavioral unit. And I was scared to death. Welcome to Digging Through Dominoes, a podcast that looks at mental, physical, and emotional trauma through real and inspiring conversations. This is your safe haven that welcomes you in, but also isn't afraid to talk about what hurts the most. And now, here's your host, Terry Anderson. Hi, welcome to the new Digging Through Dominoes podcast. I'm your host, Terry. It's not easy living with anxiety, PTSD, CPTSD, depression, trauma of any kind. And it's more difficult to do it when you feel alone. That is the main reason for this podcast. I want to share with you my story and the stories of those that I will be interviewing. You know, when I I, um, was trying to figure out how to get this podcast, where to start? Oh my my gosh, I'm 59 years old. Well, 60 by the time you see this. I'm launching on my 60th birthday. I didn't know where to start. I've learned so much. There was one point in my life where I thought, oh, this is where I broke. But there's a lot of stuff that led up to that. I think we'll start where I knew I was really in trouble and then work our way through it. Just the way that I went through therapy, the things that I found out, just every little bump along the way. We had a series of of events that really was difficult and it was in a very short period of time. For me, it appeared that everything started and I started to derail even though I was really trying to hold it together in 2004 with the death of our grandson, Isaiah. Isaiah was one of the most beautiful babies I had ever seen. And he was perfect, it seemed, in every way. A few days after his birth, we started noticing some things. And I was I was talking to my daughter and said, you know, you, we need to get him into the doctor. Something is wrong. Something is just not right with the baby. They found out that he had herpes encephalitis and was not going to live. So he was here in our house with hospice for 12 weeks until the day he died. I thought that was the worst day of my life at that point. To lose your grandson, to watch your daughter watch her child die, it was excruciating. Isaiah's death was was really just the beginning of this part that made me crash. Two years later, Josiah was born three months early. He was tiny, weighing in at only three pounds. He was 15 inches long and he wasn't expected to live. Two weeks after Josiah was born, my mom was killed. In the middle of the night, my phone rang and I thought, Who's calling me at the mil- in the middle of the night? You know, nobody calls anyone in the middle of the night. It must be a wrong number. But there was a message left, and I picked up that, fo- that message, 
and it was my aunt informing me my mother was in grave condition and I couldn't I couldn't process that because I had just spoken with my mom and my mom was fine and we'll get into her death and what caused that in another episode but I remember being very very robotic getting on the plane going down to take care of my dad for the next 13 months then in September 2007 my dad died Within three years, there had been three deaths, and I never really took the time to process any of them. It seemed like there was no time to grieve. There was no time, as I said, to process. It was just one hit after hit after hit after hit. And what do you do? You have to keep going. I still had kids under age at home. I had to be the mom. I had to be there but I started to crack. I started to veer from the person I thought I was into a person I didn't want to be. I didn't know why I was cracking. I just knew it was happening. Then in April of 2008, my granddaughter was born. Again, she was three months early. She weighed a little over two pounds, She was, I believe, 14 inches long. And I remember the doctor coming out and telling us, the baby will not live. That's a kick to the gut, being told that your your granddaughter is not going to make it. She did live. I think she took everything within her. And she fought and she made it. Those are just a few of the events that my family had to deal with in a very short period of time, four years to be exact. And in that time frame, I had been hit on my motorcycle. My son had been hit by a hit and run driver. You know, the deaths of my parents, trying to come to terms with that, it was, it was horrible. In those years, it just proved to be one catastrophe, one tragedy after another. And it was too much for me. I was craving release from my life. I was craving to get away. I didn't know what it was at the time. It was almost, I explained it as claws at my back. I began spending a lot of time at Starbucks and I would sit there for hours and I would watch people come in and leave and come in and leave. And it was weird because I thought with each one of them, I wondered, what is your secret? What are you hiding? Me, I was hiding that I was coming apart. Me, I was hiding that I was drinking a bottle of wine a night, which isn't me. I'm not a drinker. I'm not a smoker. That was really unusual for me. And it it began to scare me or it, it began to concern me, I guess I could, should say. I wanted to be, at that time in my life, I wanted to be set free from all types of responsibility. Everything was caving in on me. I felt like I was smothering. I felt like I could not take one more phone call. I didn't want to answer the phone. I just wanted release. I wanted escape from the life that we had carefully built brick by brick, we had built this life that on the outside appeared perfect, but it wasn't. Behind the facade, it wasn't perfect at all. 
I wanted to run from the devastation that had rocked my world. And I wanted to run as fast and far as I could. My relationship with my husband and my kids began to disintegrate. My parents were gone. I felt I was alone in the world. When my mom died, it was jump in and take care of your dad. So there was really no time to process the death of my mother. We were busy taking care of my dad. When my dad died, it was an entirely different feeling. I felt like a kite whose string had been cut, and I was just floating aimlessly through the universe. I didn't have a foundation anymore. I didn't have that base. I didn't have that connection, and I was just floating it was horrible. Dad died in September of 2007. Although I didn't know it at the time, my life was about to take one of the sharpest turns I had ever taken. It was June 4th, 2008. And as usual, my husband and I had been fighting all day. This particular day, started and ended in my bedroom. The French doors were closed. He was standing at the entrance. I was on the bed and I can remember, I just want quiet. I can't do this right now. I just need it to be quiet. I couldn't get it to stop. I couldn't keep listening to what a failure I was. I needed time to sleep. I needed time to recover. I needed time breathe. This had been going on since probably late that morning until about nine or 10 o'clock that night. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it anymore. So I reached for my bottle of Ambien. And when I did that, I remember thinking that I could just be, I could just sleep and I could forget everything that was happening. I knew from discussions with the doctors after the death of my grandson, Isaiah, and my concern for my daughter, how much was too much. About a year before, I had found out that that cold, sharp edge of a razor blade would bring me not only a wave of relief, but also a rush of peace. The crimson threads I saw running from my arms transferred the emotional pain I was feeling inside to something that was more tangible. I didn't get it at the time. I had no idea why I was doing it, but I knew that for some odd reason, it transferred that pain I was feeling inside to something that made more sense to me. So I was remembering that. I grabbed my bottle of Ambien and I locked myself in the bathroom. I took four of the Ambien, and it started to take effect about the time I saw those scarlet droplets that had given me so much peace in the past. I remember the feeling of relief. I don't remember how much I did. I do know I don't have scars from that. But it was, it was quite a bit. It was enough to scare my family. 
after I did that, I felt that the peace was back and that I would soon be allowed to sleep and everything would just be on hold for a little bit. The arguing would cease and I would be able to get off the merry-go-round and catch my breath. The rest of what I remember from that night comes in flashes. I'm not really sure if all of the flashes are real or if they were some hallucinogenic effect effect from the Ambien that I had taken. At that point, things got really hazy for me. And I only remember bits and pieces. I remember someone washing my arms and I wanted to sleep. I remember someone walking me around, but I just wanted to sleep. The next really vague memory I had was someone starting an an IV on me and I just wanted to sleep. I remember telling a woman that I had never intended to kill myself, that I just wanted a break. I wanted to sleep. I wanted some peace. I wanted, I needed a break from what was going on. She asked me again and I told her I needed a break. I needed a break from the rants. I needed a break from the arguing. I needed a break from feeling that I was the most worthless person on earth. Then I remember there was a person changing, helping me change clothes. I had no idea where I was at the time. But I do remember someone helping me to change clothes and asking me again why I had taken the medication. And again, my answer was I needed to sleep. Finally, and I don't remember this, I have it written here from a blog that I had kept, a journal that I had kept during that time. And that's where I'm getting a lot of these memories from. They finally left me alone. They left me to sleep. The next morning, sunlight coming through the window woke me. The first thing I noticed was when I woke up, I saw a clock on the wall. You know, the ones like we used to have in school in the classrooms. And I looked at the window and there were bars on it. I looked at the mirror and the mirror was not glass. It was just a shiny, I don't know, maybe an aluminum surface or something. And I couldn't put it together. I really wasn't sure where I was. My head was really, really foggy. And I'm trying to make sense of this place and figure out what happened. I knew I wasn't where I belonged. I didn't know how I got there. None of the memories were coming back at that point because I was so foggy. I'm not sure if they gave me anything additional to sleep or what, but it was really hard trying to figure that out. And I was so confused. I was on a small cot-like bed and I looked over and I saw the door and the door had a window in it and then it hit me. I was in a behavioral unit and I was scared to death. I didn't know what I was going to do. I remember thinking I had no idea what was on the other side of that door and I really wasn't too eager to find out. I got out of the bed and I was in hospital scrubs and it was about 6.30 in the morning. I needed to get to a phone. I need
needed my husband. I didn't know what to do. I had no idea what to do. It was like one of the first times in my entire life that I didn't know what to do, or at least have the ability to come up with a plan. I was scared to death. It was the most scary time in my life. So I sat back on the bed and I cried. And I looked around and basically memorized every portion of that room. I kept looking at the door and wondering, you know, what's on the other side of that door? And I'm watching the clock. And so I know, I know that I woke up around 6.30. But it seemed like I had been in there an eternity. When I finally got up, made it through the door, I didn't know if it was locked. I didn't know if it was open. I didn't know what was out there. I didn't know anything. I looked through the window and I could see a phone. So I thought, okay, if I can get to the phone, I can call my husband. I can have him call my attorney. I carefully opened the door and the nurse made eye contact with me. And I went over to the phone and I saw a sign that said phones don't come on until 7 a.m. Things weren't making sense. I felt like I had been awake for hours when in reality it had been maybe 30 minutes. And I broke down. I began to cry uncontrollably. It wasn't the kind of cry where, you know, you just have tears running down your face. This was a convulsive, body-inclusive cry. Every part of my being was crying. The nurse must have noticed how upset I was. She knew I was new on the floor and she said I could use her phone. And I, I couldn't believe it. I didn't know if I should trust it or not. When you're in a situation where everything is unfamiliar, you have no idea if you can trust it, if it's a trap, or what's going to happen. But I took the phone and I called my husband. I remember it took me several attempts to dial his phone number correctly. Finally, I got it. And his phone rang a couple of times and he picked up. And I remember saying, what in the hell have you done to me? Why am I here? What is going on? You have to get me out of this place. He said, calm down, calm down, Terry. We didn't know what else to do. At that point, I still didn't know what happened. I didn't remember the night before. He said, we didn't know what else to do. I didn't know what you had taken, which was a valid point. There was blood everywhere and the kids were all screaming to call 911. So I called 911. Then he told me when he got to the hospital, they wouldn't let him see me. He had stayed behind to talk to the kids. And by the time he reached the hospital, I don't know where I was. I don't know what I was doing, but they would not allow him to see me. And then he started to cry. And he, he, just, he just kept crying. They wouldn't let me take you home. They wouldn't let me take you home. At that point, I really began to plead with him to call my attorney and tell him to do whatever it took. Whoops. 
to do whatever it took to pull out all the stops. I had to get out of that place. You know, I knew the score. I knew the deal. I was in a behavioral unit of a hospital. We had been foster parents, and I knew once you're in there, it is extremely difficult to get out. After that phone call with him, I went back to my room and I just cried and I cried and I cried and I cried. I cried until I really didn't have any tears left. After a couple of hours, I couldn't stand to be in that room anymore. I couldn't stand to be alone. I was so bored. I was just looking at the same walls, the same clock, the bars, everything. I couldn't stand to be in there. And so I ventured out into the lobby. I opened up the door and went out into the hallway and looked around. And as I looked at the other patients that were in that ward, I knew this was no place I belonged and it was no place I wanted to be. There was one man there that was presenting himself as a doctor, but he had on scrubs and he had on a hospital bracelet. I knew he wasn't a doctor and he was asking me what he could do for me, what my symptoms were, and I I froze. And thankfully, about that time, a staff member came and whisked him away from me. That's about the time I decided it would probably be best if I went back to my room. Eventually, a social worker came in. And I didn't know the protocol. I didn't know what was going to have to happen to get me out of there. You know, she seemed nice enough, but I didn't believe her. I didn't believe anything that she was saying. I was very cautious. I was very wary. I had no idea still what was happening. She asked me again what had happened the night before. And I told her my husband and I had been arguing. I had taken Ambien because I wanted to sleep. I told her the very same story. I just wanted off the merry-go-round. I needed to breathe. I needed to catch my breath. And I didn't want any more arguing. And she looked down at her notes and she said, you've been very consistent with everyone you've spoken about with what happened at your house last night. And, you know, I'm thinking, well, why shouldn't I? That's what happened. That was the truth. I was sitting on the bed when she was in there and I glanced over into that reflective surface that they were using as a mirror and I did not recognize myself. My face was so swollen. It was so puffy from crying. I really don't think I could have picked myself out from a lineup. It was that bad. She said again, tell me what happened. Tell me exactly what happened. You know, I'm starting to get a little bit irritated. People are asking me this. And I keep telling them the very same thing, and they keep acknowledging the very same thing, that my story had not changed in the least. But she asked me why I tried to kill myself, and I'm like, I didn't try to kill myself. I just wanted quiet. I wanted to be peaceful. I wanted to rest. I just needed some time just to be. I remember telling her, Had that been my intent, I would not have taken four Ambien. I think I would have done something that would have a more permanent outcome, but they weren't getting it. And I wasn't getting it. I don't know if I was still under the the influence of, 
of whatever they had given me when I was at the hospital, if I was under the influence of the Ambien, if I was just crying and I was scared, I don't know. She told me again that what I was telling her was very consistent with what I had told everyone, the paramedics, the EMTs, the staff at the hospital the night before, the staff in the ED. She said my my story, like I said, had never changed. It was very, very consistent. And she didn't think that I belonged there. And I'm like, oh, no, I don't belong here. But she told me I needed to be, at that point since I was there, I needed to be interviewed by another social worker, a psychiatric nurse, and a psychiatrist. And the one that was going to make the final decision as to whether or not I was going to be able to get out was the next social worker. She assured me after speaking with me that she didn't think I belonged there. And she was going to do her best to see that I was out by the afternoon. And I just, I lost it. I didn't know what to do. You know, I just curled up on that little cot and I cried and I cried and I cried and I cried. I pulled, I remember I pulled the, the blankets, I pulled the pillows, I pulled everything up around my face and I just sobbed. And then a woman opened the door and said, your, your husband is on the phone. He'd like to speak with you. Do you want to speak with him? And I thought that was a really weird question for her to ask me. And I had no idea why she would ask me anything like that. And I didn't answer right away. And she looked at me like, is there a reason you don't want to speak with your husband? And I, you know, I'm trying, I'm trying to figure this out. I said, no, I need to speak with him. And I followed her out to the phone. I grabbed the phone and sort of slid down the wall, crying. He said, Terry, are you okay? I'm like, hell no, I'm not okay. I am scared to death here. Get me out of here. Please get me out of here. Did you call our attorney? What is he going to do? How can he get me out? That's when he told me that my attorney couldn't get me out. No one could get me out except for the people that had to interview me. Then he and you would have to know my husband to know this. He said, there is nothing that they can do to keep you from me. You are my wife. You will come home with me. I am coming up to get you and I'm going to bring you home. That freaked me out because I knew him well enough to know that he's, he's gusto. What he says, if he says something like that, he's going to do it. And I knew that that would really kind of tip the scales away from me being able to get out. If he wasn't polite, if he wasn't kind, if he was rude in any way, I knew I could be held. And I, I, you know, I reminded him again, please be calm when you get here. Be calm, be courteous, be kind, because I have no idea what's going on. He said again, I'm taking you home. And I tell him, I said, they're not going to let you take me. They're not going to let me leave with you. They've already told me. And I don't remember the rest of the conversation. And about, I, I'd say about 20 minutes after that, he showed up at the hospital and I could see him at the nurse's station. And she led him back to my room and I just held on for dear life. That was the only thing, or he was the only familiar thing that I had at that point. The only thing that gave me any source of comfort was my husband being there 
because it was a little bit of, even though we had been arguing so intensely for weeks, that was the only recognizable comfort that I had. That was the only piece of reality to my world that I had at that moment. And I held on to that for dear life. We sat down on the bed and I just, I just sort of collapsed in, into him and I cried and I cried and I cried. After several minutes of me crying, he said, I didn't know what to do, Terry. I didn't know what to do. He said, I had no idea that they would keep you. I didn't know what you had taken. The kids were all yelling for me to get you to the hospital and I didn't know what else to do. He was crying. I was crying. You know, it, there was tear, there were tears and snot everywhere. It was just, it was so unbelievable. It, it was like coming out of a movie. You know, it, it was pretty soon after that, that I realized Jeff did what he needed to do. He didn't, he was making some pretty valid points. He didn't know what I had taken. He doesn't know a lot about medication. The kids were freaking out. He really had no way of knowing that I was going to be okay. And so, you know, I kind of backed off on being angry with him because I knew at that point he was scared. He didn't know what I had taken. The kids were afraid. And he did the only thing he knew to do, and that was to call 911. It was about that time that the psychiatrist came in. He was pretty gruff. He was pretty gruff with me. Looking back on it, I could see why. I think he was trying to make an impression on me. I had no record of anything like this. I had never seen a therapist for myself. They had nothing on me except, you know, occasional visits to the ED at that hospital. And, and the, um, the psychiatrist came in and he interviewed me for quite some time. And after that, he looked at me and he said, again, your story completely matches everything that you've said so far. He said, if you were going to kill yourself, that's a pretty lame try. With 4-Ambien, that was pretty lame. And then he got really angry with me and he said, you need to realize you scared everyone in your family. You scared your husband. You scared your kids. After saying that, I was, I was afraid that he was going to keep me there. I didn't, I didn't know. And he asked my husband to leave the room and he told me, that he realized I didn't try to kill myself because what I had done was a very lame attempt, if that's what I had attempted. He said, we didn't keep you in here because we were worried about what you were going to do. We kept you in here for fear of domestic violence. I'm going to sign off on you. But you scared your husband and you scared your kids. And that is something you need to keep fresh in your mind. If you feel you're in danger, you need to call the authorities. I'm signing off. You have a psychiatric nurse that's coming to see you, and then the final social worker will come in, and she's going to be the one that's going to make the decision whether or not you stay or whether you go. I was like, oh, my gosh, thank goodness. But they had me scared to death of this other social worker that was coming in at the end of the day. So I spent that afternoon, Jeff stayed with me, and we spent that afternoon just lying there, really not talking, but kind of trying to digest everything that had happened the day before and, and the day before that, and the day before that. You know, this wasn't something that just happened one day. It built up to the point that I broke. I completely broke. 
And at this point, this isn't even the worst of it, but for me, it was most definitely one of the most scary parts. We sat there and we waited. It was like every time I saw someone, it was a relief, but it was also really putting the fear into me of this next social worker at the end of the day. And it was, I wouldn't tell them that, but I could have used a drink at that point. I don't drink. A few minutes after he left, my husband came back in the room and a psychiatric nurse came in. She asked me the same questions. I gave her the same answer. She told me the same thing, that my answers were all consistent. And she signed off on me. She had only been in there for a few seconds. But she reminded me again that the final social worker was going to be in. They were going to do their best to have me out by that afternoon. But this final social worker that came in would have the absolute authority to keep me or let me go. So I waited for hours, it seemed like. It seemed like an eternity that I waited for that social worker to come in. Finally, when she came in, she walked through the door and she said, well, she asked, are you Terry? Yes. She had the chart. I mean, my gosh, we have a problem, she said. When she said that, I just thought all hope was gone. I had never been in a situation where I had no control before, where I didn't have a say in whether I came or whether I went. And I felt like I was playing from a, a rule book, a handbook that I had never read before. And I was petrified. She said, I'm really, I'm worried. I'm worried you may try to harm yourself again. I've read through all of the reports, but my job is to make sure that you do not hurt yourself again. And I assured her, once again, I gave her the very same answers. I just wanted quiet. I needed quiet. I needed to breathe. She said, I, I hear what you're saying. She said, but you have no idea how many times people have assured me that they were going to be okay. And I signed off on them only to get a phone call later that day or the next day that they did permanent harm. I don't want to do that to you, she said. And I'm sure I looked like a deer in the headlights. I'm sure my eyes were huge. I was scared to death. I mean, this lady meant business. She meant more business than the rest of the people all put together. And, you know, I can see why. I mean, if, if you're having to weigh someone's life, whether or not they get out or stay in, are they going to be okay? Are they not going to be okay? It's all up to you. It's on your shoulders. So she really let me know the gravity of the situation. I was petrified because I didn't know. I had no clue. I felt like I was put back in childhood when we had no idea if we were in trouble or not. You know, there were really no real stated rules in my house where I grew up. And it took me right back to that fear of not knowing what was going to happen. And, you know, at that point when she said, I had to pass her test, her questions, whatever, or she was going to have the, the judge hold me, I started to get angry. And I think it was more anger out of fear Anger, in my experience, is, is something that is easier to feel than fear, and I was scared to death. 
after questioning me for I don't know how long, she said, I'm, I'm convinced that you don't belong here. She said she had gone over each and every report and all the reports were consistent, that I had never wavered on what I had said, even when I was in that hallucinogenic stage from the night before. Each interview was the same. I said the same thing. She said, I really think you're going to be okay to go home, but we want to make sure that you're out of any harm. I'm going to let you go on one condition. You need to make an appointment with your therapist. I didn't have a therapist. I had taken all my kids, my foster kids to therapy, but I didn't have a therapist. I had no idea who to call. So I ended up calling one of the social workers that worked with a lot of my kids and I made an appointment with her. So before she would sign off on it, I made an appointment with the therapist she came back into the room and she said, I see that you've made the appointment. I feel no reason to keep you here. I think that all of the reports are accurate and you can go home. Relief doesn't even come close to describing how I felt at that moment. I really, I, I had lived, that was about four o'clock in the afternoon. I think I had gotten to the hospital maybe 10 or 11 o'clock that night. So I hadn't really been there that long, but I was petrified. I was scared to death. And once she saw that all the reports lined up and that I had made an appointment with a therapist, she signed off and let me go. Today, 14 years later, I'm okay. I've come to the point in my journey where I'm not really dealing with the whys or what causes me to be triggered. And we're going to go through all of this on future episodes. But I'm at the point of enlightenment that now I know what happened. I know why I was acting the way I did. And now it's just working through all of that. And one thing I can honestly say through all of these years of therapy is the blades that I used to covet repulse me now. I have no, I don't have any in my house. I have no desire to have them. When I look at them or when I see them passing them in a store, I feel this just turmoil in my stomach. It's, it's, it's horrible. But it's taken me years and years and years to get to this place. So the next time in the next episode, we're going to talk about when I saw the therapist and what I was di- how I was diagnosed and what that diagnosis was and what it did to me. With that, I want to really thank you for listening and or watching this new podcast and joining me on the journey of telling my story in the hopes that it might help some of you. I was helped by the stories of other people. And that's what I want to do. After all, each day gives us a new chance for a totally different game. Thank you for listening to Digging Through Dominoes. 
Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. In the meantime, connect with Terry on Facebook and Instagram at Digging Through Dominoes, on Twitter at Digging Dominoes, and online at DiggingThroughDominoes.com. Until next time, thank you for listening.